Amen. <clears throat> On this date, uh, October 31, 1517, as we all know, Luther posted his 95-point thesis challenge on indulgences on the castle door in Wittenberg. It's a special day for me personally. Just over five years ago, I guess, we were at that same door with my parents who are both gone to see the Lord be with him. And what a time that was walking in the footsteps of the great reformer who my dad loved so dearly. But many of you know, one of the last conversations I had with him, just as just a few days before he died, we were in his uh, home, uh, the home of the the, uh, retirement home that he was in in his last days, and I was reading a book, and he was uh, staring at Fox News, which he would do all his life. But for some reason, it was it was too quiet. It was too soft. He couldn't hear it. I'm I'm sure. And I'm just reading, and then he just all of a sudden said, "Can I tell you something?" I said, "Sure." He said, "I've I think I know what I'm going to ask the Lord to allow me to do when I first get to heaven." And I thought. Well, as long as this doesn't have anything to do with Frank Sinatra's My Way, I'll be okay. <clears throat> that was another one of his passions. Um, but he said, the first thing I'm going to do is see Jesus. I thought, that's good. He then said, uh, then I'm going to find your grandmother because she's going to be tending a garden somewhere. And then he said, then... I'm going to find Dr. Luther. And I thought, that's great. And then, just as serious, he turned to me, and he said, so come find me when you get there, because I'll know where he is. So (laughs) if, if I'm at the pulpit next Reformation Day, you'll probably hear that story again, because I've got that going for me. But in, truth, we, but in truth, we celebrate Reformation Day as I believe strongly the heir Dr. Luter would have wanted us to, and that's picking up just where we left off last week in 2 Thessalonians in our preaching series. <clears throat> we'll hear from Dr. Luther a little bit later, but that will be the extent of our formal celebration. So open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And read along as we'll read the entire chapter, pray, and then we'll begin. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 from the ESV. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. And that way that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. 
Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, bless the preaching of your word. It's what we love. It's what we live for. May it always be as you would want from this pulpit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we all know the last 20 years has brought a cultural tsunami of change in how we live our lives. It's almost that those of us that have children and grandchildren, they are growing up in a different world. One of those ways was brought to my attention recently by British journalist and author Simon Garfield. Garfield claims, and I fear he is right, that with the advent of electronic media worldwide, letter writing, and this is a quote, is a dying and almost lost art. In his wonderful book, To the Letter, A Celebration of the Lost Art of Letter Writing, Garfield says this, letters have the power to grant us a larger life. They reveal motivation and deepen understanding. They are evidential. They change lives and rewire history. The world once used to run upon their transmission. Something that has been crucial to our very economic and emotional well-being since the ancient Greeks has been slowly evaporating for two decades. The earliest letters we have reveal that letters were opened and closed even 2,000 years ago with the same greetings and farewells still in use 2,000 years later. 
the letter really hasn't changed in all that time, but now we may be at risk of letting it change irreversibly forever. This morning, we'll see the ending of one of those ancient and preserved letters. We end our series in First and Second Thessalonians this morning. Look at back, looking at Paul's final words to this young church that he founded and he loved so much. Just like all good letter writing, Paul ends his letter with a classic farewell and even ties some important loose ends that, was, that were left from his first letter to the Corinthians. The text opens up for us <clears throat> under three headings. So finally, brothers and sisters, we will see first Paul's final ask, a request in verses 1 through 5. Second, we'll see Paul's final appeal, a demand, a command, in verses 6 through 15, <clears throat> the bulk of our text. And finally, and third, we'll see Paul's final autograph in verses 16 through 18. So first, Paul's final ask. Finally, brothers. This signals the end is near to the book. The finale in classic letter writing is often the signal that that the author's main or most dear thought is about to follow. The King James Bible here rightly says, brethren. The word literally is brothers, male, and we're not shooting here for a gender-neutral Bible. Late this week, I'm sure you may have seen, our State Department issued the first genderless passport in America with X for the sex. It's not our goal here. It's a common usage of this word to mean believers in general. So in a sense, what follows the finally here for the Thessalonians church also applies via extension to us. So finally, brethren, here's the ask. Pray for us. We notice right away the very uh, apostle who will soon again implore his his followers to imitate him has no problem and sees it perfectly right to ask the same to pray for him. Paul, in fact, in the New Testament, uh, asks for specific prayer six times. A couple of times, he says, like we saw in 1 Thessalonians, pray for us general. But six times, Paul actually requests them pray for him And as we know, he would like us to imitate him. It's interesting, and we'll take a look at exactly what Paul asks to pray for and compare that to our general requests. Not once in those six does Paul pray or ask for prayer for healing or to alleviate pain and suffering. He never asks for provisions or money. Not one mention of personal needs or family matters. He does not one time ask for wisdom or discernment. And finally, and related, he not one time asks that he might know God's will or what he should do. Question then is, 
are those all good and right prayer requests? And the answer is yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Those are great prayer requests. But what does Paul ask to be prayed for, you might ask? Well, let's take a look. The first request we see is in Romans 15, where he asks the Romans to pray that he would be delivered from unbelievers so that the saints would listen to his teaching and that he could soon come to Rome. In Ephesians chapter 6, he, pray, he asks them to pray for boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, he again asks for deliverance so that he may preach and be bold in Christ Jesus. Colossians 4, he asks them to pray that God would open doors for the word for him to declare the mystery of Christ. And he adds, that's the reason I'm in my chains. And finally, uh, he asked Philemon to pray that he could come to him. And then our text, he says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 17, the very beginning of the book. Now take a look at what it was that Paul is talking about and what were the circumstances around it. For what does Paul ask for others to, uh, to pray for him? It's simply, brothers and sisters, the mission of the church, our great commission, the preaching of the gospel, the discipling of saints. Paul prays for the word of the Lord to speed ahead and be honored just like it happened before. And this is what Paul does. He uses words that are alive and figurative. The word of the, of the Lord is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Let the, Lord, let the word speed among you. Let's take a quick look at Acts 17 to see what Paul means. Follow me in verse 1. This is how we got the, Thess the, the, the church in, Thessalonian, uh, in Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And then see verse 4. And some of them, the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. In this text, we see obvious that Paul argues from the Scriptures, and the Scriptures were the Word of God. But look at verse 13 real quick. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. For Paul and for us and in our confession, the Scriptures alone are not the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. 
Brothers and sisters, the scriptures read and taught and preaching is just as much the word of God as you read. Saints, this must be the legacy of this place. It must be the primacy of everything that's done. We may not have the greatest facilities. We may not have the reputation of having the greatest programs. We may not have many things I would like or you would like. But first and foremost, we must never, ever compromise on the preaching of the gospel and building up the body of Christ from this pulpit. Listen, every minister we hire, every guest preacher that approaches this desk, better say, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. Folks, we can never compromise Oh, church, is it what you love? Do you love to hear the gospel preached? Do you look forward to it? Do you wait in expectation, no matter the text? Our pastor will get to the gospel. It's what we need. It's what we feed on. Now, we also see Paul's explanation of the wicked and evil men here. They were the unbelieving Jews that attacked Paul Back to 17, Acts, verse 5. After the word of God was received and spread in great number of the Greeks, look at verse 4. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, I love that, wicked men of the rabble, that's what they are, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Here are the wicked men. Paul not only asked uh, that the word of God will spread, he asked that they may be delivered from evil men, for not all have faith. Paul is not afraid to call it as he sees it. He never hesitates to call sin, sin, and name a name if he needs to. We remember what happened, don't we? is they came to Jason's house where apparently Paul and many of the brothers were staying. And they dragged them to the magistrate. And do you remember what they say to the magistrate? They take Jason and a few of the other men and they take it to the magistrates uh, uh, at Thessalonica and they say, see, these are the men that have turned the world upside down. What an object lesson that is for us, brothers and sisters. What did they do to turn the world upside down? Did they make their services like the local establishments in Thessalonica? Did they add Christian drama to make it acceptable? Did they interview MMA fighters and talk about battling for Christ? Did Paul do a shoe deal so that he could have the latest and greatest in sandal wear that everybody could see how successful he was? No, they didn't do that. 
They simply unleashed the Word of God. And it was the Word of God that spread like wildfire. So, being smart, when they're gone at night, Paul and Silas slide off to Berea. And Paul ends his ask in verse 3, saying, but the Lord is faithful. We're back in first Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Paul asks for prayer. He pronounces blessing. Now let's look at the bulk of the text and see, secondly, Paul's appeal and his commandment in verses 6 through 15. Like every well-written letter, the author has a purpose, a main point or thought. Think of the real letters that you've both taken the time to pour your heart in and write and the ones you've got and received. There's a purpose, something that is just rightly said by the painstaking way you write on pen and paper or perhaps type. There's a burden to release, a question to ask, perhaps a position to take, a clear statement to proclaim, a confession to make, or even forgiveness to be sought. Paul's heart is revealed in the, in the text as we see his appeal has two parts, and we'll look at both. First, he establishes the reason for the letter in verses 6 through 10, and secondly, he also makes crystal clear what he wants the church to do about it in verses 11 through 15. In 6 through 10, the reason that the letter took place is revealed. As Paul had heard that there were idleness and the, and the people that he knew, the men or, and women who were idle in, in, in Thessalonica, who he had warned in the first letter, had not repented. Look at verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. Men, don't you love that? I do. We like it, don't, it, don't we? Straight over the plate, waist high, no questions. Ladies, listen, do yourself a favor. This is what your husband wants to hear. Over the plate, waist high, just where we can touch it and get it. Quote, okay, it's Saturday. There's no plans. You've already watched one game. Turn it off and help me, please. Got it. Over the plate. Waist high. No curves and no uh, change-ups from Paul here. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Now, your version may say disorderly. The connotation uh, is not doing what it's expected with a twinge of maybe laziness. 
and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. Oh, Paul's instruction here is such a good word, isn't it? It's so needed in the church today. It's so needed in our young people today. It's simply a Christian work ethic. Look at how he continues. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine any preacher standing up and say, okay, today's lesson, imitate me. Paul has no qualms about it. He says it all the time. He says, for you know yourselves how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. We had the right as ministers to be compensated. But we did it to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, they should not eat or let him not eat. Now, Martin Luther is so quotable, and this would be the perfect place for the famous Martin Luther quote that says, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I'd go ahead and plant the apple tree today. The problem is Martin Luther never said that. It's not found anywhere. It's one of about seven or eight sayings of his that just don't exist. They're good, and he could have said many of them, but we just don't know that he did. But listen to this statement from Luther on this particular uh, topic. He's quoting, this is early in his ministry in Wittenberg. Uh, He's teaching, his first thing he does as a professor is teach through the Psalms. And this is when he gets to Psalm 128.2, which says this, you shall eat the fruit of of the labor of your hands, you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Psalm 128, 2. Listen to Luther's comment on this verse. Your work is very special. It's a sacred matter. God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessings upon you and others. The world knows nothing about labor as a blessing. It flees. It hates it. But the pious man who fears the Lord labors with a, with a ready and cheerful heart, for they know God's command and will is that they work. Now listen to this. Thus, the pious farmer sees this verse written on his wagon and his plow The cobbler sees this on his leather and his awl. The laborer sees it on his wood and iron. And happy shall they be, and it shall be well with them. The world inverts this thought. The world says, miserable shall thou be. It shall not be well with thee, for work must ever be a burden. Only those who live a life of leisure without labor have the wherewithal to really live. You know, unfortunately, we in the church sometimes can adopt those worldly principles. 
And I'm talking brothers and sisters to people my age. We have this thought in America that once you hit 65, I'm done. It's time for golf. It's time for fun. It's time for travel. It's time for the beach house and this house and that. I've saved my money and I'm doing this. And I got to tell you, there's nowhere in the scripture this idea of this retirement love American style. It's not there. In preaching class, uh, I had one of my aha moments in seminary. I had probably four or five of them. I want to say more than one came from Jordan, but this one did. (laughs) Jordan laid out in uh, preaching class the life cycle of a preacher. And I'd never heard anything like that, and it's one of the greatest things I've heard, and I've said it, you know, a dozen times since. He said that the life cycle of a pastor is three sets of 20 years, ages 20 through 40 are the years that you're just learning the craft. You know, I remember I preached my first sermon at seminary, and it was so bad, I came home and was bawling. Lisa said, it couldn't be that bad. I said, it was that bad. <laughs> I called Jordan up. I said, I got to meet you this week. I got to talk to you about this. And we, uh, we, we met over at Chili's. And I said, and he goes, hey, you'll find your voice. And I said, well, how long did it take you to find your voice? He said, 10 years. I said, I don't have 10 years. I got a good seven. But that first 20 years, a preacher learns his craft. And so does a worker. And so do you, brothers and sisters, and those of you just starting your careers. You got 20 years to fit, you just figure it out. And you're probably going to go through two or three or four jobs in that 20 years. There's no more working 50 years for a gold watch in this society. It don't happen. Maybe it could for you. Wonderful. But the first 20 years, 20 to 40, you're just figuring it out. Then for the preacher, 40 to 60. Ah, those are the golden years. That's your best earning potential. It's your uh, your best work. And normally, we call it quits at that. If I can make it 60, time for golf. And then he said, nope, the third cycle is 60 to 80. You don't have the burden anymore financially that you'd had. Your kids are gone. This is the time that you pour your soul into others. You pour your soul into young ministers. You pour your soul into young elders. And that's what we do, brothers. And I'll tell you, we've got some in this church. We've got a couple of elders who probably should be emeritus and say, I'm never being emeritus. I want to interview people. I want to, I want to shepherd. That's what we need to have, is those hearts. But Paul says, not only if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat, but, oh, Christian, whatever God gives you to do, do with all of your heart and might and soul the best you can. And students, listen to me, young people. Listen. Do your best work at school. You remember this. Every spelling paper you put your name on, 
every test you take, you put your name on, you don't forget that you are putting your Christian name that you were baptized with on that paper. Do your best. Learn as a young man, a young woman, a young boy, a young girl to do your best work. I promise you, you'll feel better about it. You'll feel better about yourself. You'll feel better about life. Do your work. Do it right. Shame on us all, young and old, for representing our Lord by griping and complaining about our work. God wants to bless you, and he wants to bless others in your endeavors. He's given you these jobs. Take them for his glory. Be the first one in the office. Be the last one to leave. Volunteer. When your boss thinks about you and the job he's given you to do, does he know without question it's going to be done, it's going to be done right and on time? Theologian and professor at Dallas uh, RTS, Greg Beal, tells a story of two theologians after World War II that were converted through a woman named Mildred. Mildred was a typist in the typing pool when they used to have those. They used to have all the ladies and they'd type things. And her boss asked the supervisor, what is up with that girl? She does like twice the work. She's always smiling. She's always running around the office. And the supervisor said, well, that's Mildred. Okay, what about her? Well, she's, that's just how she is. The boss kept looking at her, kept looking at her. Finally, one day he came up to her and he said, hi, Mildred. He said, I want to ask you, how is it that you work so hard? And she said, well, sir, I'm a Christian. And I'm doing the work for you, but I'm really doing it for my Lord. That man was mystified. And he talked later about it bothering him. And he sought, what is it about this Christian life? He was converted, ended up being a theologian. He's preaching in a church, telling the story of Mildred. And a 20-year-old man hears the story of Mildred, talks to the professor afterwards, and says, I was so moved by that, that, that story. He goes, do you know Christ? I don't know that I do. He led him to Christ he went off and became a theologian as well. Two theologians. Why? A Christian woman that we don't even know her name in the story. Her work ethic. <sighs> Had a recently, I won't embarrass her, a young lady in this church. My daughter was having a difficult, difficult time finding a babysitter that could, you know, do a job. She'd come home after being out with her husband, the, the house was 20 times worse than it was when they left, and laziness, all of it. So she actually hired a, a young lady from our church, and my daughter will tell you the story. She came home the first time, the dishes were done, the house was spotless, the kids were happy. Brothers and sisters, that's a reflection on Jesus Christ. That's a reflection on this church. Now, the details remain sketchy. Were these loafers in Thessalonica? 
Were they convinced that the Lord was coming back and so that they didn't need to work or want to work? Or were they just lazy? Or was it a combination of all of them? They certainly were defying the Apostle Paul, weren't they? We don't know for sure, but we, but we are sure of what Paul says to do about them. Listen again, Paul's sobering words in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at the work but busy bodies. I love that word. You know what it is when you hear it, don't, don't it? It's, be, you know, not minding your own business, getting in every other's business, not working. <clears throat> busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to I love this, do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I have to confess, after studying this, this verse for upwards to a month, I'm at a loss for words. I know there's an element of church discipline in here for sure, without question. But verse 14 remains a sheer mystery to me. One commentator I think comes close in my mind, in his heart, uh, in my heart, when he applies this to withholding the elements at the Lord's Supper that uh, not have anything to do with them. But it doesn't satisfy me. If anyone does not obey what we say in the letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Church discipline is serious, brothers and sisters, and we need to take it serious. The confusing part for me is the last part of that verse when it says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So certainly excommunication cannot have, Paul cannot have that in mind, but warn him as a brother. Finally, Paul's last autograph. I leave the former to your interpretation. When you have the correct answer, I'd like to hear from you. Because I just don't know how someone comes to this worship and I shame him and won't talk to him. I don't know. Maybe there is a way. I, d I don't know. But finally, Paul's last autograph. This is a touching climax to a great chapter and in two great little letters. Paul says in verse 16 through 18, and listen to this, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul would dictate his letters to a, a stenographer. Uh, they would call it uh, amanuasis. It's like a stenographer. But to avoid fraud and authenticate, he would write in his own handwriting a verse or maybe sign his name. It testified to the reader who knew Paul's handwriting, yeah, 
This is Paul. He wrote it. Paul ends not asking for prayer, but praying a benediction for the people. What a heartfelt prayer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Then after the authentication and personalization, he then says the only thing that he really can say at that point, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Can we not imagine the scene? That Sunday morning, when perhaps one of the elders stood in the congregation and held it up and said, this just came from Paul. He opens it up to read it. There would not be a wandering thought or a gaze away, hardly a breath taken. This short letter was read aloud, and brothers and sisters, everyone in that room knew who the busybodies were. There were probably stairs, most likely and hopefully tears of repentance, or possibly acts of belligerence. But the man of God whose words, unknown to them, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that word sped around the hearts of God's people and did its work. Then the joy. Let me see it. It is his writing. I know his writing. It is. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. It's Paul. As we close, there's only one thought left. Simon Garfield in that same book, To the Letter, writes, what makes a good love letter? He says, truth, vulnerability, passion, a bit of secrecy. These letters are so intense, we either want to shout or burn them immediately. Love letters catch us at a time in our life when our marrow is jelly. But we toughen up, our souls harden, and we read and read and reread them again and again. And again, oh brothers and sisters, indeed those uh, Thessalonians were a blessed people. The Apostle Paul wrote personally to them, but oh, what would they have given to have what you have? The complete revelation of Jesus Christ, a love letter written through the ages to you and to me. From a Trinitarian God, the maker of heaven and earth, this letter describes the love of an electing father that chose you from the foundation of the earth. It tells of his son, your redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who came from heaven and was foretold by the prophets 
who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect substitutionary death that you deserve. It tells of the Holy Spirit who not only inspired every word of this love letter to you, he regenerated your heart to receive the good news of the gospel. And the same way he raised Christ from the dead, he will raise you from the dead as well. It's all here. It's all in your love letter. Let's read and read and reread it again and again and again. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this young church. We thank you for this man of God. I dare not ask to be prayed for on things that were to him minor, but he prayed that he would preach and that the gospel would not be unhindered. Father, we thank you for this man of God. We thank you for this church, and we thank you, Father, for this book, our love letter, and we love it. We're ashamed that we don't love it enough. We're ashamed that we don't read it enough. Father, we love you. Burn these truths in your hearts to your people tonight, we pray. Amen.